What's up, everyone? This is Jim. Welcome to the Holmes Politicast. This week, um, we have several stories to get to, and I'd like to talk a little bit about some controversy over a Netflix film if we have time. But if not, I can save that for next week because controversies continue no matter what. You know, they're always around. So, or there might be something more important to talk about. Anyway, these three stories are from Michigan, or about Michigan. Um, th- this first one is from the uh, MLive, and it's uh, the writer is Lauren Gibbons. This become very familiar with on this show. I quote from her a lot. Um, Michigan House signs off on federal $300 per week unemployment spending and $6 million for dam flooding relief. And it says here, the Michigan House voted Tuesday to implement federal money to boost unemployment payments by $300 a week, as 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 well as send additional state funding to the Midland and Detroit areas for flooding relief efforts. In a 106 to 3 vote, lawmakers voted to appropriate $2.87 billion in federal money to pay for a $300 per week unemployment benefits for the months of August and September of this year. The money was made available through the Federal Lost Wages Assistance Program. Another $9 million in state funding included in the legislation would go towards flooding relief efforts around the state. Of that, $6 million would be directed to cleanup grant matching funds, debris removal, and emergency protective measures in the aftermath of flooding from the Edenville dam break, and $3 million would be put towards addressing flooding response in Detroit. It was overwhelming to see the tears of hardworking business owners who had dedicated their lives to serving families in our communities and of the money of the many families whose homes were severely damaged or completely destroyed. Representative Annette Glynn, a Republican from Midland, said in a statement after the vote, we're all in this together and together we'll recover and rebuild stronger than before. Uh, the bill also included $8 million in funding for putting up a barrier at Brandon Road Lock in Illinois to stop Asian carp from entering the Great Lakes. Senator Jim Stamus, a Republican from Midland, sponsored the bill and said it would go a long way towards helping unemployed Michigan workers and communities recovering from the flooding. The legislation will return to the Senate for a final vote this week and would need to be signed by Governor Whitmer to become law. Interesting. Um, hmm. so it's going back to the Senate and I guess they're going to have to vote on it. I don't know if there's, you know, we don't know yet if the Senate's going to have any complaints, but it passed 106 to three. I mean, that's a pretty solid majority. Um, and it would have to include, uh, a large majority of Democrats. I mean, I don't know who the three were that voted against it, but even if there were Democrats, there's certainly more than three Democrats in the Senate. So. It obviously is a bipartisan bill. And again, uh, you know, I think I've said this before about the $2.87 billion in federal money. You know, um, uh, this again shows that the federal government was not negligent, as we keep hearing. 
that they did approve uh, damages and they're, they were helping the people of Michigan, contrary to what you'll hear, that um, the president was MIA off on the golf course, didn't care about blue states, whatever it is. Um, so that's the only way Michigan is going to get through this. $300 per week unemployment benefits is definitely going to help <clears throat> the citizens of Michigan who are unemployed right now. So <clears throat> that's a good thing, I guess. Um, although I don't, <clears throat> to be to be fair, I don't like federal money being spent. But in a case like this, I can understand the need for it. It's just federal government spends money, you know, like it's water because they, you know, they can print up more money if they run out. So, you know, we have these huge, massive deficits, and I just, you know, I'm just not a big fan of the way government just throws around money like it's nothing. Um, but I'll give them a break this time because we are in kind of a emergency situation here with the pandemic and the forced closings of all these things. And then with the flooding <clears throat> that has, you know, that is not the fault of any person. So, um, it is nice to have that, uh, cushion or it's not the word I was looking for, but like a cushion to fall back on uh, a safety net was the word I was looking for during these times, but, but anyway, that'll be interesting. I'll have to keep an eye on that to see if it passes the Senate and then to see what Whitmer will do. I'm, I'm sure that she'll vote for it. Um, I say that and then I start thinking, well, it is possible that she wouldn't, but you know, there are some, some reasons why she might political reasons, but, um, but I think she'll probably support it if it passes the Senate. We'll see here. Um, <clears throat> the second story that I have here is one that I actually talked a little about last week about where, what is the end game here? What, what is, how does this end with the emergency plan? What is Whitmer's thinking as far as how many people have to die or how many people is she willing to let die before she cancels out this emergency or ends this emergency? Um, and then, so this story is from MLive, and it's by Zara Ahmed. And the headline reads, Michigan, like, as if, as if they're responding exactly to my question. Michigan will not soften coronavirus response until there is a vaccine, Governor Whitmer says. Uh, the article says this, Michigan will not soften its response to the coronavirus pandemic until a vaccine is produced and readily available, Governor Whitmer said in a September 9th interview with the Detroit Regional Chamber. In an interview with Daniel Lope, president and CEO of Blue Cross Blue Shield, Whitmer touted the state's response to the virus, but said Michigan won't be out of the woods until a vaccine is approved and readily available. There is no question we have fought hard in the last six months. The sacrifices that we have made are paying off, Whitmer said. Until then, we're going to have to continue to follow the science. The pandemic hit Michigan hard in March, prompting Whitmer to mandate non-essential workers stay home and students learn from home until the complexities of COVID-19 were better understood by health officials. Slowly, Whitmer began reopening different sectors of the economy based on how risky operations would be to spreading the disease and eventually allowed schools to reopen in the fall. Most recently, the governor allowed gyms to reopen and high school sports to proceed. 
Michigan's economy is at an 87% of where it was in March, Whitmer said. No one wants to re-engage every sector of the economy more than me. Businesses have made incredible sacrifices, Whitmer said. I lose sleep over that because I know these are good, hardworking people who built something over the course of their lifetime. The state, the state was ranked seventh in terms of economic recovery from the pandemic, Whitmer said. Let me just interject there that I don't know who ranked it seventh. I mean, what she she's not giving us a uh, you know where she's getting this you know information from. What's the basis of this? But according to her, the state was ranked seventh in some poll out there uh, in terms of economic recovery. When you follow the science and work with businesses, you build consumer confidence. Whitmer said, "We're in a much stronger position than other states." Those who stepped up as essential workers during the pandemic will be able to participate in the Future for Frontline Workers program, which provides tuition-free college opportunities, Whitmer said. Historically, when people put their lives on the line to protect the rest of us from an enemy, we have shown our gratitude by providing them with educational opportunities to improve their lives, Whitmer said. The frontline workers in Michigan have put their lives on the line to fight a new enemy, COVID-19. State officials have also formed task forces to address the racial health disparities exasperated by COVID-19, Whitmer said. This disease has held up a mirror to the United States and reminds us of the very real health disparity that Black Americans face every day. Partnerships have been key to the state's response to COVID-19, Whitmer said. She referenced businesses such as Ford, Dow Chemical, and Huntington Bank, which have helped manufacture personal protective equipment, masks, and hand sanitizer, as well as fund programs to help Michigan families. The state also used federal funding to create the Michigan Small Business Restart Program, which awards $20,000 grants to local owners reopening. The last six months have provided important lessons in, in responding to the coronavirus, Whitmer said. It's still uncertain how intense and long the second wave will last, according to the governor. We're in a much stronger position going into what will most likely be the second wave of the coronavirus, Whitmer said. We know that we need to keep a second wave from overwhelming us. And the rest of the article just goes on to explain what you can do to prevent COVID, you know, like washing your hands and stuff. But anyway, here's a couple of things. First of all, she's already preparing for the second wave, which means she's not She's not going to relinquish anytime soon. Um, I do have a question about this, though. And, and this is a legitimate question. I'm not sure. I've heard this in other places, too. But it says, you know, the disease or, or she set up a task force to address the racial health disparities. Um, I, I've been hearing in a number of polls that black Americans have been more affected than white Americans. They're more likely to be in. I don't know if they're a little more likely to be in, uh, infected, but it seems like it's hitting black communities hardest. I'm not, I'm curious as to why that is. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not, you know, throwing out like systematic racism or anything like that. I'm just asking the real question. Like, I'm not sure why, uh, I'm not sure why disease affects different people anyway. I mean, I know that you know, um, you know, they say like white men are more likely to get have heart problems 
than women and, and, uh, black men, you know, um, I don't know if it's a matter of diet or what, but I just found that interesting because I've seen it in other, uh, other statistics. And then I see it here where Whitmer is talking about, um, you know, the, the health disparities that black Americans face and things. I'm just curious as to why or why you think it hits black Americans more severely than white Americans. Um, you know, and, and that could explain why Detroit area is a lot more affected than West Michigan or the Upper Peninsula. Um, some have argued it's because they're in a denser population. You know, they're around people all the time. They live much closer where in the West side, people are close, but not like as close as they are in Detroit where, you know, everything is right on a block and you've got apartments and you're constantly interacting with people. I don't know, but I've heard the statistic before that black Americans are more likely to be infected with uh, coronavirus than white Americans. I don't know if it's true. I don't know if it's just um, a talking point, you know, more the victimhood, you know, look, on top of everything else, black people have to deal with coronavirus worse. You know, it's just horrible. You know, I don't know if it's a victim mentality to make us, you know, to either make white America feel sorry for them or if it's to make black people feel worse injustice. I don't know if it's legitimate. I don't know. And if it is legitimate, why would coronavirus affect black people worse than it would white people? I don't know. Um, that's just something I've wondered about for a while. And then it, it brought it up again when I see Whitmer mentioning it. So she's obviously heard these same things. And so I'm just curious as to what you think is the reason why that it, if it's true, and if it is, what would be the reason why they would be more affected? Um, the other thing that I got from this article is about this uh GI Bill for the uh, frontline workers. Uh, it's called the Future for Frontline Workers Program to provide tuition-free college opportunities. Um, I mean, I, I'm not... I, I don't understand the purpose of this. I mean, I understand wanting to maybe help them out a little bit. You know, I would understand maybe giving them some bonuses or something or... But I'm not really sure about the tuition-free college for them. I haven't, I haven't, and let me, let me explain why there is a difference. I haven't fully decided whether I'm for or against it. Um, I, I'm leaning against it, but, you know, I can be swayed. It's one of those areas where I haven't heard both sides. I might be able to be swayed, but this argument I don't agree with. She said, historically, when people put their lives on the line to protect the rest of us, we have shown our gratitude by providing them with educational opportunities to improve their lives. Um, okay. She's talking about like the GI Bill when we are at war and young people volunteer to go fight in the military. And when they come home, their, their, their college is paid for so they can, they can go to school and, lead productive lives. Well, this is, that argument has no real basis in my opinion, because this is not the same thing as going to fight in war. If you are 18 years old and you sign up to go fight in Iraq or Afghanistan, or back in the old days, you went to World War, fought in World War II, either in 
the Pacific or you went over to Europe or you're in Vietnam or any of these places, you're putting your life on hold for however long the war lasts. So if it lasts four or five years, you know, you, you get done with fighting that war. Let's say you fought the whole time. And now you're in your early 20s and you come home and you don't have an education and you don't have any work experience. All you've done is know how to shoot and kill people. And I'm not I'm not disparaging the military or anything. I'm just saying that many times you come back and you don't have any real skills because you spent the last four years in a foreign land and your main job was staying alive and protecting, you know, protecting a line or protecting a artillery guard or, you know, or or trying to take a hill or something. So these people come back and they're at a disadvantage because they sacrificed instead of going to college or starting a business or getting or learning a trade or these things, they were off serving their country. So when they come back, we make up for that time. You sacrificed for us and we're going to sacrifice for you. In this case, these frontline workers, um, well, they were working and yeah, they certainly put their lives on the line to a degree. They weren't, they, you know, this is what their job was. It wasn't that high school kids dropped out of school or, or, or didn't go to school so they could work as nurses and, you know, and because there wouldn't be doctors obviously in the healthcare profession. And now they've lost this entire year of their life and they need some compensation for it. Even if they, even if they did sacrifice and decide to take a year off of college, they can just go back next year. It's not, it's not like they spent the entire, you know, their entire young adulthood while, while their peers were out getting a career. We were all in shutdown. Nobody was going to school. You know, nobody was, was working, you know. So I, I, don't, I don't see how they have a disadvantage for having helped uh, fight the coronavirus. I, I don't see how, you know, how they sacrificed. I mean, they... You know, they were paid for their, you know, they, that, I don't want to make it sound like I don't, I don't appreciate what they did. I do, but I'm saying it's not the same sacrifice as fighting in a foreign land, you know, facing a very real enemy that could kill you at any time and would have no qualms about killing you. And then coming home and being at a disadvantage because you haven't worked, you know, when a business goes to hire you and you say, well, I've been, I've been in, you know, in Iraq the last five years. But, you know, we have other college applicants who are right here who have got a degree in what we're looking at. We've got all this stuff and you, all you've done is just gone over there and been shooting and fighting. I mean, yeah, in a perfect world, you would, you you know, a a business owner might look at that and say, you know, I appreciate your service. I'd want to hire you. But, the reality is lots of times they're not going to because you just don't have the experience they need or, you know, so, so I just, as far as the future for frontline workers program, I'm leaning against it. I don't think it's a very good idea, a very good program, but I can be convinced if, if someone comes along and makes a really good argument, but this argument is not a really good one to say that what they did was the equivalent of war. I mean, That's obviously Whitmer has never served in the military. I've never served in the military, but 
I know enough about the military just in what I've seen and what I've heard from my father and my grandfather and my uncles. And I had some aunts that were in the military, but that was back in the days when they had like the women's corps, which really wasn't, they didn't do any real fighting or anything, but you know, I've known people, I have friends who served in the military, you know, the things that they witnessed and the things that they experienced are horrific. And some of them will never, they'll never forget it. And some of them might have trouble ever recovering from what they saw. I mean, they just got to block it out because it's so horrendous. I just find it almost insulting that they would, that she would compare nurses and healthcare workers who helped with COVID as being the equivalent of soldiers who are at war. Again, the healthcare workers, I'm sure it's hard. I'm sure it was hard. I, I'm very thankful for what they did. I know they probably had, they probably saw some horrible things too. I mean, people died, you know, and that's, and that's a hard thing to watch. It's hard to watch somebody die and helplessly help and feel helpless as you watch them die. But I just don't see it on par as fighting World War II. And so I don't think that they deserve just on that basis of doing their job. And again, this is, this is their job. This is what they are trained for this is what they want to do you know they, they want to do um for the most part a young a young person who volunteers to fight in a war for their country do not want to make a career out of the military there are some who do but most of them are putting their life on hold to go serve for a cause they believe in or for the country they believe in or you know um you know and so then they come back and they need they need something to help them uh, get an education, and so they can get they can rebuild their lives now that they're home. But these people, this is what they do for a living. This is what they want to do. I don't know what they need free college for. I don't know. And again, I just I don't know where all this money comes from. They said this is a what did, did it say? If this is a federal program, um, it doesn't say. Because it says future for frontline workers. It doesn't say Michigan future or anything like that. So I don't know if this is a federal program or if it's a state program. But um, I don't know where this money is coming from. Once again, I, you know, we hear over and over, you know, I don't I don't see how the Republicans supported this because we hear over and over whenever everyone talks about um, paying off student loan debt or free college. The Republicans are right there saying, wait, 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 you know, we don't have the money to pay for people's college and all this. And yet somehow this either passed the Republican Senate and Donald Trump signed it into law or it passed the Republican legislature and Whitmer signed it into law. I don't this is not something I don't think that she could just create. Um, unless and the other option is that I didn't think about. It doesn't say here, but unless this is a private organization, unless like businesses created a fund to help pay for college, I mean, I guess that's a possibility too. It doesn't say here in the article how this fund came about or where it is, you know, or who's funding it. But I guess that is a possibility that it's a private organization that and businesses and people donated to it. So. Um, if that's the case, then it's really none of my business. I mean, if, if people donated to it to give them free education, that's that's their business. 
if it's a government program, I don't support it. I don't think it's needed. Um, all right. I have one more story here. We, we're only about halfway through, so I think I might have time to talk about some other things. On, on the same um, part of, uh, on, on the same topic of how does this end, we have an article here from The Hill, which is a national newspaper that usually covers Capitol Hill. Um, and it's an article by Justine Coleman, and it came out on the 13th of this month. So it's only, you know, not even a week old. But it says um, 400,000 sign on to a ballot drive to repeal Michigan governor's emergency powers. Here, um, the article states a ballot drive to repeal a Michigan law that gives the governor emergency powers has gathered more than 400,000 signatures as of Friday. Unlock Michigan is about 100,000 signatures away from its 500,000 signature goal in supporting a revoke of the 1945 law that Governor Whitmer has used to issue coronavirus restrictions statewide, including mandates on masks, social distancing, and social gatherings, the Associated Press reported. If the state uh, elections board determines that at least 340,000 of the signatures are valid, then the Republican-controlled legislature would likely move to repeal the law rather than wait for a 2022 public vote. Whitmer would not be able to veto the repeal. Oh, let me just say, this is fantastic. I didn't realize, I was thinking that if, if, if the petition was passed, then it would go to vote immediately. I didn't realize that this would have to be on the 2022 ballot. I'm not sure. Oh, because that's the next statewide. Yeah, because it's a statewide issue. So it have, it wouldn't, I guess it wouldn't next year. There's no statewide elections. So I guess it would have to go to the next statewide. But at that point, you're already, we're already voting on Whitmer. So it seems like that's going to be a campaign issue as it is. So I don't know what the point of putting it on the ballot would be except to keep future governors, I guess, from doing it. But anyway, but that's interesting that the Republican-controlled legislature would repeal the law, um, which I'm not sure when I think about it. Maybe it'll explain it later. I'm not sure why, if the Republican-controlled legislature would repeal it if 340,000 signatures are valid, why they can't just repeal it now. They already see that the public is opposed to it. I don't know. I'm not sure why they have to wait until this, if they can, if it, this isn't needed to repeal it, it would just give them the backbone, which is not a very good sign for the Republican legislature if they have no backbone to do what the public wants until the public says we're done waiting. And then they say, oh, okay, we'll do it. We'll do it. Um, the potential repeal would leave a 1976 law permitting the governor to declare a state of emergency in place. No one, no one should think that allowing a politician to have unlimited power for an unlimited duration is a good idea, Fred Zolak, a, a spokesperson for Unlock Michigan, told the AP. Put the shoe on the other foot and decide if you think this is a good idea, because at some time in your future, the shoe will be on the other foot, he added. Unlock Michigan expects to turn in the signatures as early as this month and estimates the State Elections Bureau 
won't take more than 75 days to verify the signatures. As of August 3rd, Unlock, Unlock Michigan has collected and spent more than $900,000 to send out its petitions, with most of the funding coming from Michigan Citizens for Fiscal Responsibility, according to the AP. Whitmer has called on state residents not to sign the petition, saying the orders have allowed the government to keep people safe and permitted some businesses and schools to reopen while following safety regulations. Each governor since 1945 has had these same powers, and I'm going to fight to make sure that every governor after me has these powers if, God forbid, they find themselves in a situation where they have to be used, she said, according to the AP. A different group called Keep Michigan Safe, boo, formed in opposition to Unlock Michigan, um, um, hold on, I accidentally hit something, um, uh, plans to find flawed and duplicate signatures or evidence that petition collectors lied. Uh, the New York Times categorizes Michigan, Michigan as a state where new cases are lower and staying low, with a seven-day average of 826 new cases per day. Republicans filed a lawsuit against Whitmer after the governor declined to agree that all future stay-at-home orders would have to pass with bipartisan legislation. The case is pending in the state Supreme Court after Whitmer won in two previous courts. Um, then they go on about uh, federal politics because it's probably because it's the Hill and they feel they need to throw in some some, you know, arguments against Trump and what he's doing. But anyway, that's rather interesting. Um, rather interesting, I thought. So we may be coming to an end to this. This would be really nice. I'd like to see the Republicans act right now, but because it's, it seems like the momentum is there anyway, and people are tired of this. So I don't understand the politics of waiting until the people actually get the petition signed and then say, well, now we'll act and we'll go ahead and repeal it. I, you know, it, it seems like they kind of played games with the public, making them spend $900,000 to create a petition when they could have easily just repealed it to begin with. But whatever, as long as it gets repealed. But I just, that's an area that I'm kind of down on the Republican legislature, that they just don't have the backbone to, to fight it until they know that the people um, – are, until they know we're going to do it anyway, it's going to be on the ballot, so they might as well do it. It just seems kind of cowardice to me. You know, they could just easily do it now and save us the trouble of having to force it, force a ballot issue. But <clears throat> politicians are usually not very, um, politicians aren't known for having spines. Usually they kind of go with the flow, whatever the public wants at the moment. They, not a lot of them are leaders, so. I guess it doesn't surprise me. Um, I have about 10 minutes. I'll just quickly talk about this Netflix movie, Cuties, which is getting a lot of attention. Um, I have not seen the movie, in full disclosure. I have not seen it, and I will not watch it. I have no. Not only do I have no intention to watch it, I am not going to watch it for a number of reasons that I don't need to get into, but I've read the reviews. I've read the reviews from uh, Christian Sites, uh, parent guide sites have also read reviews from just average, uh, you know, just movie reviews, you know. So they're not all partisan. They're not all Christian. They're not, you know, none of this kind of stuff. 
And it seems to me, so I don't really need to see the movie to, uh, to critique this. Um, cause I'm not making a critique of how the film is made or the storyline or anything like that. So I don't feel like I have to watch the movie to make a critique. The, I do want to say in the one thing in the film's defense that you'll hear many times people saying that it's child pornography and Netflix is, uh, you know, promoting child pornography and all this. Let me just say that um, there is no pornography in the film. There's no nudity. There's no sexual situations. So that is a misnomer. Uh, probably just meant to be, you know, because we're in a very divisive uh, time right now. Um, you try hyperbole to say the most outrageous things to get, to get your point across. Um, there is no child pornography. What it is though, is a lot of just scantily clad little girls, you know, who are doing this cheer and, you know, they're part of a cheer class and they wear, you know, like ballerina clothing. I don't even know what they're called, like onesies, you know, just real tight fitting, I guess. And, that in itself, I mean, is kind of uncomfortable, but, you know, but like I said, ballerinas wear that. You see girls wearing that in in ballerinas. You see it sometimes at the beach in one one piece suits. So I'm not I'm not saying that that in itself is inappropriate. What is inappropriate is that the girls are dancing very mature dances. Um, some of them are evocative of what you might see at a strip club, from what I understand. Not that I have experience at a strip club, mind you. But from what I understand, they're, they're kind of dances you would see at the strip club. They're very sensual dances, uh, you know, and they're wearing this a little bit. And then the, 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 the cinematographer, who, you know, the actual cameraman, and I guess it could be the director too, working in conjunction with the director, um, from what I understand, has a lot of, what they call crotch shots, you know, just a lot of, of close-ups of their stretches and things, which just are a little inappropriate that, you know, instead of doing a full shot of a girl doing a stretch, they do like a really close-up of her thighs or whatever. Um, and that is inappropriate. I mean, it's, it is, it's not pornography. It's not, but it is, it feeds into this idea once again of the sexualization of our children. And we're seeing it more and more. And I'm not saying that I'm not saying that children have never been the victims of sexual abuse in the past, that children were always held up as little angels and that nobody ever dared to treat a kid wrongly or anything like that. I, I'm not. And, and I know, well, I don't I don't know from experience, but I know from uh, the evidence that has existed that child pornography has existed for a long time. I, I don't I don't know when it started. I, I don't really care to know enough about it, but I know that they've had people being busted in child pornography rings since like the 1970s and, you know, maybe earlier. But I know since the 1970s, we've heard about the FBI busting child pornography rings. So I'm not saying this is just something that has just crept up in the last couple of years. But we're seeing more and more of our children being sexualized in their actions and in their looks, um, they're growing up very fast. And, and when I say growing up, they're not growing up mentally very fast. They're growing up, uh, physically. And what I mean by that is not biologically. I mean, they're growing up, meaning, you know, you're seeing a lot of young girls looking like adults, you know, doing their hair and makeup like adults and 
um, you know, um, I don't know. It, 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 it seems to be a problem. Sometimes you see with the beauty pageants again, I'm not, I'm not saying beauty pageants are, you know, they're all child molesters and things. Um, you know, every parent has to decide for themselves if they want their daughter to be a part of some of these beauty pageants, but some of them are just very gross. I mean, you see them and again, I don't, I don't go to these I'm talking about like a television. You sometimes see them, you know, where they have these six or seven year old girls, um, singing and dancing on stage in a beauty, you know, mini beauty pageant and stuff. And they got all this makeup and it just looks gaudy, you know, and singing songs like I want to be loved by you and just weird, weird things. You're like, what on earth is this little girl doing up there? You know? Um, so, but I, it's weird because you only see this with the girls. You're not seeing boys are actually regressing a little bit. I mean, you're seeing, boys who are in their 20s and 30s and sometimes still living at home still playing video games i mean i'm not i'm not knocking video games i'm just saying but but they still have a very young mentality further and further you know um into their into you know whereas you know 30 or 40 years ago a boy couldn't wait to move out of his parents house and get his house and get a car and have a career and a girlfriend. And now you're starting to see men regressing where they're taking longer and longer to get into relationships or to finish you know, college or not go to college and, you know, and uh, wasting their life away on drugs or alcohol or, you know, just refusing to grow up. And girls seem to be the opposite where we're, really maturing our girls very early, you know, that you need to look like a woman, you need you know, makeup and earrings and hairstyles. And, you know, you want to look more mature, you want to look older, you want to look like a woman. And, uh, and I don't know what the reasoning is for that. I don't know. I, I can't say that there's any government program or any government policy that is promoting this. I don't know if it's in schools, I don't know. I, I'm not sure what exactly got us to this point where we're expecting girls to act more mature and older and giving a pass to boys and expecting them and allowing them, I guess, to be boys as long as possible until they have to, have to grow up and quote unquote, be a man, you know, and, and face life and, you know, and because girls are acting more mature as they get older, you're seeing a lot more cases of um, guys who are sleeping with, or adult guys who are sleeping with underage girls, and I, and that, and I'm talking about, I'm not talking about like the the pedophiles, you know, who go after little kids. I'm talking about, you know, a guy who might date, you know, an adult who might date a 15 or 16 year old, and and in some cases he might know, but in a lot of cases, you don't know. These girls act so mature and dress so mature that you might just assume that they're over 18. I I happen to know a number of uh, people, or I, I did know them. I, I, I haven't seen them in a long time, but back in my partying days, and um, uh, I knew a lot of people. We'd have these parties, and, you know, my friends would meet a girl at the party, and she's there drinking, and she's looking really mature and everything, and, you know, and they hook up or whatever they called it. And, you know, and then later we find out that, you know, she's only 16 years old, you know, 
you assume that everyone there is an adult. You assume that everyone there, they're all acting like adults, that they look like adults, you know? And so, you know, um, the girls that they knew never pressed charges, but had they, the guy would have gone to prison very likely, or at least jail for statutory rape. And I'm not, I'm not saying this is the girl's fault. I'm not, I'm not at all advocating. I'm just saying that we as a society are expecting our girls to act more mature. And then because of that, you're seeing a lot more cases of very mature girls who are underage, but act very mature and look very mature. And, and then, you know, guys get screwed up. Now, of course, this would all be avoided if, you know, we weren't partying and sleeping around with every girl. I'm not, you know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that the guys are okay and justified in sleeping around and it's, and it's the, it's, you know, the poor guys are, are being victimized by these evil women who look old or these Jezebels or something. No, I mean, they're both at fault. I'm not at all saying that, that, um, that the guys were set up or something. I just mean, but we're starting to see that become very prevalent. I mean, I'm seeing it a lot, actors and celebrities and, and, and just reading in the newspaper um, and, and seeing on the internet, people all around us are constantly going to jail. Not, not for a majority of them aren't doing it, you know, aren't having sex or molesting, you know, a nine-year-old or a six-year-old. Most of them are, you know, they're like, it's like a 15, 16, 17-year-old girl. And I'm thinking it's because of the maturity, you just assume that they're older and you just don't think to ask somebody when you meet them, how old are you? Again, I don't, I don't mean that to say that it's perfectly fine and these guys shouldn't be held accountable. I'm just saying that we're just seeing the sexualization and I don't understand. This is again, something maybe you can answer for me is why we expect girls to act grown up and to dress grown up and behave mature or why we encourage it. Maybe we don't tell them to and why we don't encourage boys to do that. Why we allow boys to remain boys in their behavior well into adulthood, you know, where a lot of boys don't get serious about their lives until they're 25, 26, 27 years old. Um, this is just unusual to me. It's just, it's just something that I find very strange, but We'll have to talk more about that another day because we've run out of time, as usual. We never seem to have enough time together. So next week, we'll be back here, uh, provided nothing major happens to me. I'll be here next week. And um, we've only got a couple of weeks, uh, about six or seven weeks until the election. I think it's seven weeks. And, and just... I think next week will be the last week before we start the debates. So time's going to fly really fast right through here. And I'll probably have a lot of election stories to talk about the next couple of weeks. Maybe not next week, but after this, we'll see. We'll see. So I'll, uh, you know, be sure to rate and like and subscribe and uh, comment. I'd like to hear your thoughts on this, on some of these topics, answer some of these questions that I have. And make sure you listen to Tom's show. I'm sure it'll be a banger, whatever it is. So talk to you soon. Bye.